One of the marvels of living our life is knowing that wherever we go, we're never alone. God ensures that in our relationship with Him. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a testimony of how God not only restored us from a fallen state, but how He enjoined with us in a relationship that's ongoing. It's not one that we only encounter from time to time. It's not one that we just spend 30 minutes with Him once a week. It's a constant relationship that's beautiful and wonderful. It's one in which He knows everything about us. He knows all of our weaknesses and our failures. He knows even our thoughts that even those closest to us don't know. Hopefully, we don't verbalize all of them. But He still loves us. He embraces us. He guides us. He's forgiven us. In such a beautiful relationship, we must understand, must go with us constantly. The Bible is the one supreme source of revelation about the meaning of life, the nature of God, the spiritual nature, and the needs of men. It's the only guide in life which really leads in the right direction. A friend of mine has been not only a psychiatrist for many years, but she also is a professor of psychiatry uh, at Georgia College. She's a brilliant woman. We knew when we were very young that she was the special person in the group because while all of us were reading our weekly reader and, and, and casual reading, she was, she was reading the big, thick, as they call them, chapter books in the second grade. And she told me one day in a conversation we were having about her uh, career field, which she's moving toward retirement in, and she said, Jerry, here's the sad truth about psychiatry. She said, I cannot name anyone that's ever gone to a psychiatrist and they've been uh, let go fully healed. And she said, the same is true sometimes with psychology. People will go to a psychologist or a counselor, and, and they may get a, a, a certain amount of, of improvement, but they're never really healed. And she said this to me, which I thought was remarkable. She said, even in the career of medicine, she said, there are frustrations that you encounter. And she said, many doctors today are in counseling because they can't seem to ever get anybody to an area of health that would be maintained. And she said this. She said, but as a Christian... I know that my faith and how I communicate my faith will always end in perfect success because the Spirit of God goes with the words I speak. And she said, I've actually considered it and I've decided that when I do retire, I want to go into full-time Christian service. In fact, she said, what I'm going to tell people in my church is that everything I did before that was in preparation for being in full-time Christian service because it's so frustrating that when you try to help people, you can't help them. She said, as a Christian, I can do that. And she said, God's Word is my strength and it's my direction. It's my hope and my inspiration. That's encouraging. And by the way, when, when I retire, if I ever do as a preacher, I will not become a psychiatrist. I promised her that. I said, there's no way I ever want to do that. Remember, the Bible is the most reliable book ever read because, first of all, you can trust the testimony of Scripture. Number two, you can trust the, the who in Scripture, the people that are spoken of there. 
I remind you that nothing that we've ever discovered in any extra-biblical context has ever contradicted and, and, and disproved Scripture. There's another part of Scripture that's powerful. You can trust what Scripture does. Because every story in Scripture has been validated in some way or manner in other avenues. The hard science of archaeology has never disproved anything in Scripture. There have been things that we did not know about, we had not discovered, but at some point we have discovered most of what's discussed in Scripture. And there are many items there now some people look at and they'll say, but we, we don't have enough clarification in this. And I say, well, just hold up and start digging. You'll find it. It'll be out there somewhere. I told you some months ago that one of the most remarkable discoveries some time ago was that in the region near Beersheba, in the Promised Land, was discovered a sarcophagus that held the rarest thing they've ever found, a a mummy. A mummified body was there in the Holy Land. Not, Not in Egypt, but in the Holy Land. And it has been discovered because I guess our naivete, you know, when we heard that, that when the Israelites were led out by Moses from their bondage in Egypt and they traveled into the wilderness there, they took with them, it says, the bones of Joseph. But none of us ever stopped to realize that they were not carrying a box of bones as in the, would be in the traditional Hebrew tradition of carrying someone. They were carrying a child of the Pharaoh, a leader of Egypt that was embalmed as a Pharaoh. And they believed they found the body of Joseph. Isn't that that amazing? Over and over again, archaeology proves Scripture. I don't need it to prove Scripture. I trust God's Word. I know that God is reliable. He's been reliable in my life in many, many ways, very personal and also very public. And I'm thankful for that. But I know this, I can trust God's Word. You can trust the testimony of Scripture from the beginning. You know, we're told in this passage, it says, that which was from the beginning, we can trust. And we have to be faithful in that. By observing the rest of the paragraph here, and you read it, you understand something about the nature of Jesus Christ and His relationship with you. I'm convinced that men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself but because it contradicts them. It challenges them. It makes them stop and consider who and what they are. When we handle the Bible, when we read God's Word, we're not reading this like a manual of how to take care of ourselves. This isn't like the one that used to be in your glove box. I'm not even sure if uh, automobile dealers do that anymore, but you used to have one in the glove box, and you could go to the back in the index and look up almost any problem there and maybe help you know where to go to fix it. That's not the way the Bible functions. The Bible is a love letter written to you. It's an explanation from creation to eternity about God's relationship with you. It reminds you often that He loves you unconditionally. You know, it's amazing that as a Christian, once you give Him your life, it doesn't say that you sign up to become a Christian. It doesn't say that that you join a club or go through a class, or you may do that to, to be a member of a church, but in order to be a Christian, you don't do that. You begin a relationship, a walk. 
John Bunyan described it as, as the progress of a pilgrim, and they're moving through life. And, and some of us are moving through life, and we go through storms. We go through times of crises that seem almost impossible. But God's grace is always sufficient because He's hammering out in us the reality of what He wants us to be. Not that somehow when we get to heaven, we need to be at a certain point in our progression. No, when, when, you, when you die in this world and your spirit goes to heaven, you will go through the third part of your salvation as you enter into the celestial presence of God, and that's called glorification. You'll be separated from the sinful body that, that had the, uh, the frustrations and the anxieties and the fights and the struggles through life. That will be gone. That is buried because it is dead. It's died with the sin that was there. But you're resurrected into heaven, and then at some point, when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns, your body will be remade and reunited with your spirit. I'm convinced that, that in heaven, there is such a celebration of the mighty acts of God that people enjoy, that they spend eternity celebrating what God has done. And your way of beginning that is prayer. First part of your prayer every day should be celebrating what God has done in your life and remembering that. Adoring God and thanking Him for the blessings of life. Thanking Him for being there so many times when you didn't even recognize that He was there, but He was there. He goes before us many times and prepares the way and protects us. You know... Why can we trust what John says about Jesus here? I think it's very simple. John tells us we can trust Jesus because he is the one which we have heard and which we have seen with our own eyes. We've handled him. He's been with us. His presence and his power is theirs. It's not our own cunning that gets us through this life. It's our trust in him. It's the unseen hand of God that changes circumstances that no human could ever change. If you want to know where the world is today, please don't turn on your television set. You're going to hear the same old, same old. They're going to tell you about the problems. There's an expression in journalism that's been around for over 80 years. It goes like this. If it bleeds, it leads. They're going to tell you the negatives because they're not going to show you a basket of kittens that were rescued by a puppy. They're not going to show you the, the young boy that stood all day long helping the elderly get around town. They're not going to show that because, you know, that's not what the world is attracted to. The world wants to be rubberneckers watching the disasters of life. Don't ever feed on a diet of that. Be a person of hope and help and encouragement. Understand that our Savior and our Lord, though we're in a broken world, we are here to make a difference. And at a distance, the world needs that difference today. Some of the people in John's time were doubting, even then, the testimonies that were given. And today, people have almost written off Christ and His salvation. But it's not because they don't believe it. I think that they're actively in hatred toward it. Satan is more active today than he's ever been in the history of the world. 
He's attempting to gather people away from God and to turn the church against the people of God. The greatest danger we can encounter as Christians is to become ununified, to turn against one another. Our unity is not about our perfection. None of us are perfect. We're all very flawed. But our unity is in the power of the Holy Spirit that guides us. Remember, the mighty act of God was not perfecting uh, people who, who made no mistakes in this world. No, we're going to continue to make mistakes even after we accept Christ as Savior and have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're going to make mistakes. The important thing is this, that we move in the direction of God finding forgiveness and offering forgiveness. The most frightening passages of Scripture is when Jesus informed us that as you forgive other people, I'll forgive you. Now think about that. Think about people whose life is always in a disaster mode, yet they have an unforgiving spirit. When something goes wrong, it's somebody else's fault. When a disaster comes along, they can, they can describe who did it and why. God wants us to be forgiving people because He forgives us. And He does not want to shut the door of forgiveness for us in our lives. He leaves no doubt that our eyewitness of what He has done in our life makes a difference to those that we encounter. We don't need a, a fancy program to explain to the world who Jesus is. We don't need all the bells and whistles of, of what they have in, in, in modern technology to convince people who Jesus is because usually at the end of the day, the difference in your life is the fact that Jesus abides with you. Some people want to develop relationships and friendships that, that will last forever. They won't. They won't. People come and go. I, I, I look out at this... Uh, the sanctuary, and I see the, the places where many wonderful, good people sat over the years, and they've graduated on to glory. But I also see the places where new people are to come in, and we just haven't reached them yet, but we need to. And when I say we, I'm not speaking of just the staff, I'm speaking of all of you, because we're all called to do that. If you had a vacant seat in your automobile coming to church this morning, it should have been filled with someone, someone that needed hope and help. Now, I know we're dealing with the pandemic, and people are still very afraid, and I understand that. I want them to make wise choices. I want them to not walk out into an area of fear because the reality is it's hard to worship when you're afraid. But I will remind you of this. Scripture tells us that perfect love casteth out fear, and the love of Christ will give you the strength to do that which is right. We know God's Word is true by experience. Those of us that have walked with Christ, we don't need the testimony that others need, yet we still need to proclaim that. The eyewitness accounts of those who trusted Scripture. The account of what you went through. It's as, it, your story is as important as any story told in the book of Hebrews of those who trusted God and it was counted to them for righteousness' sake. Those are wonderful words for Abram, but they're also realistic words for you. We can trust because the things that are written in Scripture are not made up, they're not thought up, they're not conjured up, they're not contradictory, they're not men's words, they're God's words. 
Now, God communicated through men and women. Scripture was not written by one culture group or one language or one idea. Not at all. 1,400 years, about 45 people wrote, and God spoke through them. God sometimes would put a person through an experience, and they'd write out of that experience. And, and, and I look at that, and I tremble because I think about some of the prophets and what they were required to do, to write. I think about the Apostle Paul who wrote a, a number of passages of Scripture literally from a prison cell. His last writings were not even in his hand, most likely. Someone wrote for him because he was going blind. It was the Apostle John who was put aside on the Isle of Patmos. And when it seemingly he had been sidelined for the rest of his life, he produced the greatest document known to man. The revelation of John. He literally told God's story from that point forward into eternity. They revealed, they opened up, they uncovered the mystery of the future. That for thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of, of thinkers and soothsayers wanted to predict. and He wrote it down and he said, this is it from God. I love the way... They ended that because they said, if you add to these words, not the whole Bible, but just to the, uh, the, the, the revelation of John, if you add to this, the plagues of this book will be added to you. And if you subtract from it, your name will be subtracted from the book of life. What a frightening reality there. What he said was basically, read this and trust it and allow it to be a guide for your peace in life. Meaning, whatever storm comes on the horizon, ignore it. Because this is your direction and your destination. It will not be thwarted or offended or changed by your experiences. We've got to understand that. Now, you can trust the testimony of Scripture and what it's about because it's manifested to us in a realistic way. The word manifest that's used here in the second verse that I read is a powerful word because it means to unveil or uncover, to reveal. God has a way of revealing to us what we need when we need it. He does not just simply pile it all on top of you and expect you to sort it out. It was quite a beautiful thing when I realized that education was not going from one subject to the other and each one of them was compartmentalized away from the other. Actually, uh, being an educator is, is a lot like uh, painting lacquer on a pretty piece of furniture. You know, lacquer is something that you put on and you rub off and you put on. And you might put 50 or 75 coats of lacquer to get really the perfect polished finish. Well, that's what educators do. You start out with a kindergarten teacher, and they begin to lay the groundwork. That's not tossed aside with a first grade teacher, not at all. It's added to. Then the second grade, then on through there. And, and, and actually, the very, the very basic English grammar teachings that you learn in those early formative years in school are the same ones you will follow in college. 
which unfortunately, and I've, I've been a reader and a grader before, a lot of people forget that. But the truth is, in Christianity, we do the same thing. We layer upon layer upon layer our walk with God. And the early layers should establish what we become in life as we are faithful and we trust Him. God wants us to have that kind of relationship. This life was not hidden so that we have to search for anything. There was in the New Testament in in, in book of Timothy... A problem in the church. And the problem was there were, there were people who were following what they call Gnostic te- teachings. G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And Gnostic or Gnosis meant secret knowledge of God. And the Gnostics said that, well, there's certain things that, that, that not the average person knows about God. So if you don't have those, you're just, you're just not where you need to be. And I'm so glad those were addressed because God doesn't hide from us. He's not sneaking around and just giving His Word to certain people. Now, some people imagine that they know that, and they imagine that they know more, but they're, 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 they're kind of like Barney Fife in one of my favorite episodes. No, I don't have a favorite episode of Andy Griffith. All of them are my favorites. But one of the ones that I love so much is when, when Barney reveals the secret to making good spaghetti. Do you remember that? Oregano. He thought that was a great mystery. The reality is sometimes what we think is a great mystery, everyone else knows. We're just a little late to the game to figure it out. But understand this, God doesn't hide anything from us. Nothing at all. He loves us. You can trust what Scripture does also. It binds us together. It gives us a confidence that we're not fearful or doubtful of what God is going to do. We know that God will be there with us. The, the word fellowship that's used here is a very precious word. Uh, it, it, it's used several times, and it's important to us because in the vocabulary of the Christian, without fellowship, we're hopeless. It means Fellowship just means to have something in common. And the fellowship that we have is great and is powerful. As sinners, men have nothing in common with the Holy One. For them to come to church might be the greatest challenge of their life. If someone has never become a Christian, they've never been near a church, don't just invite them to church. Build a relationship with them. Invite them first to your home. Then invite them into your circle of friends. Build a place where they are accepted and affirmed. And then bring them into church. It will be the simplest thing you ever do. Church can be frightening to folks that don't understand what it's about. They may get caught up with the customs and and the traditions and the way we do things. And those really, frankly, don't matter. You hear me? They don't matter. Some people used to throw rocks at certain denominations for having all these traditions. Well, let's be honest. Baptists have as many traditions as any other denomination, and many of those traditions are meaningless. They're just a form of a way for us to come together and to worship. And there's, that's fine. But they do not dictate whether or not our worship is real or genuine or accepted. That comes in our heart and our relationship with Christ. A writer a long time ago said this, and I want you to follow this if you can, because I think it's the greatest statement I've ever heard about the Bible. It says, 
The Bible is the book of the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you up. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven is open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is the grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is the mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ, and yes, to glory itself in eternity. I can't say it any better than this. And the reality is that God's Word, the most copied book in the world, the most commonly found book, is usually the one least read. Please make sure as we begin this journey, this journey of faith, that you take time to open God's Word and do something that's so simplistic. Begin to read it. Because something will happen in your heart and in your life that will not happen with any other thing that you can read. The application of God's Word to your mind will be applied to your heart and your life through the work of the Holy Spirit. I've read passages of Scripture over the last 45 years, and I'll read them again, and something new will come out that I've never seen before. And that's very simple. It's not that they're magical. What it is is when God moves you through certain stations of life and certain experiences, He reveals Himself in His Word in a way that, that nothing else can, can work. And it will have a new meaning and a deeper meaning and a more realistic meaning than you've ever had before. I'm encouraged by the fact that many great people have understood the importance of reading God's Word. I've told you before, I love the story about the little boy who brings a friend home one day and the friend notices every time they walk by the grandmother's room, she's always sitting in the same rocking chair with his big Bible open reading it. And, and the boy finally breaks down and asks, he said, Timmy, why is your grandmother always reading the Bible? And he said, well, I don't know. I think it's kind of like school. She's studying for final exams. Well, maybe you need to be studying for final exams, preparing getting ready for that, knowing God's Word, understanding the comfort that you have. Many great people, in their last moments of life, as it drifts away from them, open God's Word because it gives them a peace and a satisfaction of knowing that they're not stepping into the unknown. They're stepping into the presence of one who knows them better than anyone else that they can trust. Sir Walter Scott, one of the greatest men that ever lived, a man who wrote prolifically about God's Word, was dying. His son-in-law was in the room with him while the nurse was there watching after him, and he looked at his son-in-law and he said, please bring me the book 
And he looks at him and he says, Father, your library has thousands of books. Which one? He said, Son, there's only one book. Bring me the book. And they opened God's word to the Psalms. And he began to read the 23rd Psalm. And he passed into the presence of the Good Shepherd. I can't imagine a greater way to leave this earth. But right now, before you leave this earth, I can't think of a greater way to encounter God and walk with Him. Sit down and figure out, as a friend of mine did in Atlanta not long ago, he calculated how much time he had spent watching cable news. And he determined that he had spent six hours a week watching cable news. I, I thought that was rather conservative, but six hours. So here's the commitment he made to God. He said, I will spend six hours a week reading your word instead of watching that. His wife first reported to me that she said, my husband has changed drastically. She said he smiles now. He's not afraid. He's not complaining. He doesn't walk into a group of men and begin to to mention about all the horrible things going on in the world. He, he reminds people of our hope and our future. Oh, dear people, put down the remote and pick up God's Word. It will change your outlook. It will change your initiative in life. It will change your heart. Trust Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that your holy word gives us strength and help and hope. But Father, I thank you that we have to make the decision to read your word. We can't simply hold it. We can't simply listen to it. All those things are good. But the reality is we need to read it and allow your Holy Spirit to apply to our hearts and our lives the power of the word. May we encounter that in a realistic way and be changed. Father, I pray that if there's someone here within the sound of my voice that's been struggling with their relationship with you and, and they understand they're not what they should be or want to be, I pray that today would be a day that they'd come forward and someone would pray with them and they'd find direction to grow closer to you. For the storms of life are many and the darkness of the world that we live in is great. And we don't need to give up, Lord. We can't huddle in a corner and just say, I'll stay here till you return, Lord. No, we're the change agent. And we've got to be busy. Now, for, Lord, speak to someone here who's, who wants to move forward for you, but they don't know exactly where to go or what to do. May they trust your spirit to guide them. Father, if there's someone here that needs to come forward and join this church or be baptized, someone that just needs to come forward and have someone pray with them. I pray that this would be the day they'd make that decision. For truly, the bonding of the body of Christ together gives us strength and unity that nothing else can offer. And this is a time to come together. Father, speak to us now. And I pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.